mastering your emotions so you can be a safe space for the feminine mm, is yes. actually to me the art of masculinity so i would think it means two things to me one it's always like an eye of the beholder so realize that it's okay to have a different view than somebody else two it's always being created and recreated uh i i think it means an openness to growth an openness to learning an openness to looking at what is masculinity in me and having curiosity about what parts are serving me and what parts maybe aren't serving me so well anymore. And so the art of masculinity is truly that. If you can master being a lion and a lamb, you've mastered masculinity. The art of masculinity to me means knowing how to gracefully dance between both the feminine flow and the structure of the masculine. This is The Art of Masculinity with your host, Johnny Elsasser. Hey everyone, today's guest is Will Rezin. He is a mystic, philosopher, somatic coach, and trainer, and trauma integration specialist who guides individuals on the often mystical and winding journey of waking up to their own aliveness. Will integrates 21 years of inner work, esoteric inquiry, and cultural research with 13 years of professional experience in the healing arts. Everything Will does supports his personal mission to end human suffering and his professional mission to bring trauma-informed care into the mainstream so that it can be available to everyone who needs it without stigma or exclusion. This was such a powerful episode with Will because I was learning a lot from him as he dives into some of these things that help heal trauma, help us work through trauma and come to terms with it, and then move on in our lives and our own purpose and passion. So I know you guys will enjoy this episode as much as I did hanging out with Will. He's an amazing human being, and he's got some really cool things on the horizon. So stay tuned till the end and listen to what he has on the books. All right, guys, have an enjoyable episode, and I'll see you guys around the corner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. Today, my guest is Will Reason. How's it going, brother? Oh, man. Johnny, it's going great. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to have this episode with you. I had the fortunate experience of one of my favorite podcasts is Wellness Force. We now changed to, um, oh, man, Josh is going to kill me. What did he? It's a wellness and something else. I'll have to get back to that. Josh is going to kill me for this, but, uh, <laughs> my good friend host, Josh, he just changed it. So it's wellness and wisdom, but there we go. Wellness and wisdom, wellness and mm -hmm. wisdom. There we go. Um, yeah, Josh, you had, you were on the show with Josh and it was an absolutely epic episode, really informational, so much to dive into. And I'm excited to open up this box with you here on the art of masculinity. Likewise, brother. I'm excited to be here with you. Well, awesome, man. Let's first, I, I want to get you into the manly round. It's just a few quick questions to ask you so the community can get to know you a little bit, maybe differently from how other people know you. You ready for it, brother? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Your first question is, what is your spirit animal and why? Mm, a big cat might be a tiger. I had recurring dreams as a child about Bengal tigers, the white ones specifically, and um, I would go to sleep at night praying to the genie, to God, but praying, I kind of, you know, I was 
three years old, I thought it was more like a, you know, you ask for what you want and you get it kind of thing. And, um, mm. I'd go to sleep imagining this tiger. And in my sleep, I would be with a tiger. I'd be riding a tiger. I'd be running alongside a tiger. And then I'd be running so fast that I needed to use my hands to move myself. And then I'd be running and then I would be the tiger. And I'd be seeing the world through the eyes of the tiger. And I'd be pulling myself forward with my hands. I was just running so fast and needed my hands. I needed to be on all fours to be running. And um, I've had this recurring dream most of my life, um, off and on, depending on my life. But uh, these, yeah, it's almost like I'm flying, but I'm not flying. I'm using my hands, but I have to, I'm pulling the ground. Uh, or I'm pulling myself, It's but it, it kind of feels like I'm pulling the ground and I'm smelling my surroundings differently. And yeah, it, it, so a large cat of some that's, kind. That's amazing. That's probably the best explanation. Plus it's like really, that's a really vivid memory. Like that's a, that's really mm. cool that you have such a, like a tangible experience with it as well. Yeah. And I'd say you know, to extrapolate outward from there, while there's this association that I have with being a child, cats are, they're really smart. Not only are they smart, they're agile. Their intelligence works for them. They stalk and they hunt their prey. They, they can be smooth and mysterious, but also ferocious. They can be tempered, very tempered, but they can also access that primal energy when they need to. And in many ways, I, 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 my personality is very much like that. I'm pretty soft and smooth and docile most of the time, but I have the depth and the range to be able to access that intensity when I need it, much like a cat would. Mm, that's awesome. And it's so great to like uh, see that I hear you speak and I've listened to like your podcast with Josh and I could see the, I can see that kind of cerebral thought process and your speech patterns and mm -hmm. how you, you really address a question and things like that. But you definitely have that, you have that underlying side of ferocity, especially when you're speaking about something that you're passionate about too, you, you carry that. So it's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. It was pretty cool too. The, the Jaguar actually only when it hunts, it only makes two footprints. That's I don't know cool. if a lot of people know that. Yeah. I didn't know it that. only makes two paw prints. Those are, they're incredible creatures. Oh. I spent some time mm -hmm. living in Peru and there was a night where we heard the sound of a Jaguar and it's a really interesting sound. There's yeah, mm. the, like the, it's like a growl sort of, but not like a large cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My wife and I spend a lot of time in Costa Rica and they're there. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I ever want to like roll up on this thing or be out in the jungle when this thing comes around. <laughs> no, thanks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, but no, thanks. Um, all right. Your next question. Your next question is, uh, what song, whenever you hear it, no matter where you are in the world, it doesn't matter if there's a million people surrounding you, What's a song that you absolutely have to start singing along with? Ooh, interesting. My relationship with music is different than most, I think, because I've played music the majority of my life. Um, and I don't connect with lyrics quite the same way as I connect with the melodies of, of songs. 
Okay. So let's see. What would I have to start? Maybe what's a melody you'd have to start humming along with? Maybe a melody that comes out and you have to start singing, humming with. Yeah. Well, when you were asking the question, the first thing that came to mind was Moonlight Sonata. Um, That's that's a song. Interesting. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Funny that that's that's the thing that came up. (laughs) But that's a song that when I hear it, I'm just touched, um, and it moves me in in a really special way. Um, Sing along with. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind. <laughs> That's okay, man. I love it. The I love that you have that like awareness of what's the dig. Some people like I'm I'm just starting to learn to play the guitar. And yeah. every time I start playing, like uh my teacher had me like kind of strumming with the beat, right? You're supposed to strum with basically the drum holds the mm-hmm. beat, but I always want to strum with the lyrics. I don't uh-huh. I just always want to strum with the lyrics. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> So very interesting now that I know a little bit more about music, just a little bit, not, not a ton. All right. Your last question is if you could pull a prank on any well-known person, so you can time travel, right? Mm -hmm. And so somebody that we would all potentially know who this person is, who would you pull a prank on? Mm. If I could prank somebody, who would it be? I would, I would have to say probably, um, oh God, maybe Alan Watts. (laughs) That would be pretty fun. He's a trickster already anyway. Yeah. He's goofy, man. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I like his stuff. Yeah. That's pretty good. I love that. Well, you did a good job. That's good. Not, not too hard. No. People get to get to know you a little differently. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to dive into this stuff. A lot of your work is, is around trauma and you know, how we, how we actually kind of a lack of address to trauma in our world today, but you're also this mystic and philosopher and somatic coach and trainer. And I just want to dive into a little bit of what brought you on this path. Yeah. Um, well, I think probably as, as we, we hear with a lot of people, it was my own journey. I can say in retrospect, I've always been fascinated with humans or with, with our history, with myth, mm-hmm. with culture, with um, mystic teachings. And that fascination extends to the human mind, the human body, us in general. And so when I look back over my life, I can see ways that my interests were shaped by this fascination that I've had. Now, that fascination, if we pair that with some of the um, real range of experience that I've had in life, I think what happens is those two come together and we, we see me just fascinated with us as humans. What makes us do what we do? What makes me think the way I think? What makes me behave the way I behave? And that's kind of, that's turned into, um, like, I want to say almost an obsession, but it's not an obsession in a, uh, a negative sense, like a passion, a drive towards understanding how behavior is created and how it's augmented and changed. But definitely my, my lived experience. I mean, I've, I've, um, I traveled barefoot for almost two years. I've extensively experimented with psychedelics. I lived in a, like a boy's camp 
for almost a whole year. Um, I lived in the woods during six months of that time, isolated from the rest of the kids. I told a little bit of that story on, um, on a podcast on uh, Cal Callahan's podcast, the great unlearn. And some of these experiences shaped my, it gave me time for self-reflection and they, they forced me to mature in a way that I might not have otherwise. They also gave Mm. me a deeper understanding of how other people behave under stress and how I behave under stress. Um, I've, you know, I've survived on as little as three to $5 a week and I've made, you know, 30, $40,000 in a week. You know, like there's this whole range of Mm. experience that I've had in my life. And that, that range has lent itself towards my, to deepening my fascination and my understanding of, of humans. So trauma specifically was a byproduct of my exploration of, I I guess we could say consciousness, Johnny. Um, It began as uh, me running away from my feelings. It began as me looking for some way of turning off the pain that I was experiencing after living through an assortment of difficult experiences during my teenage years. I turned towards psychedelics and uh, drugs and alcohol. I mean, we could say, you know, but anything that would help to soften my experience of what was going on inside and help me to, you know, I'll put it in air quotes here, connect to feeling something good. Um, And that led to an exploration of consciousness, exploring meditation, exploring mysticism, exploring various forms of um, myth and culture, kind of like what um, Joseph Campbell might've done not quite as studious or as academically focused as, as his work was, um, but definitely mm-hmm. an interest in the more ancient and esoteric arts and cultures. And that led me towards studying energy healing and uh, Reiki and apprenticing with some astrologers for a number of different years. And through that, I, was, I realized, oh, I could probably do this professionally. I didn't have a map for it. And then I got a map for it when I started working with these mentors. I'm like, oh my God, I just did a retreat with them. They're, they're mentoring me and in, in how to become self-aware, so to speak. I wouldn't have used those, those words at the mm-hmm. time, but um, I started to see that I could do what was most natural to me as a career. And that, mm-hmm. and that turned into exploring more deeply what makes us do what we do, our internal, intrinsic uh, motivation for our actions. And it started more as mm. a, a mystical, like, how do I find my sense of my purpose, my soul's calling? Um, how do I connect with ritual in the world and make meaning out of, out of life? I studied Carl Jung's work a bit. Um, and that led me towards, my mom's a psychotherapist. Um, she went into that field later in life, but that led me towards things that were behavioral in nature, psychology, physiology, and she connected me with uh, Peter Levine's work. And um, mm. I, after living in Peru for almost a year, I came back to the States and started going through the somatic experiencing training. And that's where everything coalesced for me. It all came together into focus. Um, and what Peter's done really beautifully is he's put language to the mystical um, mm-hmm. and he's measured it with science. And so whether we call it energy whether we call it the chakra systems or whether we call it the nervous system 
and you know a constellation of nerve endings it doesn't really matter we're still talking about the same thing that happens inside the human body and that was that was the opening that i needed to begin to make sense to, for things to come into focus and and i realized that trauma is a word that we're using nowadays to describe that which prevents us from being alive or experiencing mm. our aliveness we're always alive but that which prevents us from experiencing our aliveness is the living memory of the past that's still happening inside of us right now. And we can't distinguish right now from that memory when it's living inside of us. And it just seems to be a byproduct of how we're wired at the moment, how we've evolved and we're, how we've been conditioned um, through culture and religion and a variety of other different factors, family and stuff. And once I realized that, I'm like, oh, well, it all makes sense. But, but the way I describe trauma is very different than what you know, the average person might think of when they think of trauma, they think of the trauma unit at the hospital, you get hit by something yeah. and they go and you stitch it up and that's that. But yeah. what we know is the body has a really beautiful memory system. It's not just in the, in the brain. It's all over. It's a reflex. You were in the military, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you trained your reflexes to behave in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And that would keep you alive. Those reflexes are necessary. Yep. Well, our organism is, it grows that way. So we have these reflexes and ad adaptations to stress. Um, we can train some of those out of ourselves and others we can't. Um, and so this interest that I have in this is, has really illuminated the way that most of us move through life without an awareness of these reflexes. And that augments our personality traits um, it changes who we might partner with, the kinds of work that we might choose, the kinds of locations we might live in, um, and how we might behave in any given circumstance. Right? That living memory really mm. dictates so much of us. And so when we're, you know, in my curiosity about, well, how do I help a person change their behavior? Right? Just, just asking that question, I'm like, well, here Good we go, luck. rabbit hole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? There's the rabbit hole. Well, what's causing the behavior in the first place? <laughs> yeah. Long answer yeah. To, your, uh, to your simple question. I know. I love it, brother. This is where I think like this is where obviously the real fruitful parts of conversation happen because there's so many things that we can all start to pull out of this. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was... Um, you know, listening to you kind of extrapolate a lot of that and say, okay, is trauma is, are we misidentifying trauma today? Like, I think, I feel like trauma is a big buzzword a lot in the self-development world. I feel, I feel like it's a lot when people are, you know, quote unquote coaches, um, mm. is, is trauma being misclassified? And, and if, if not, like, um, are we kind of really correct in our identification of trauma um, and how our brain, you know, creates this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think in many ways it is misclassified and misunderstood. Part of one of the reasons why my ex-fiance Ariana and I created the training that we run together. Um, we stayed business partners and we separated romantically last summer. But part of the reason that the mm. two of us created this training that we did was to help people to understand what it actually is. Because once mm. we started to understand it, we realized, oh, geez, we've had it all wrong. Trauma is not what happened to us. It's how our body responds to what happened to us. It's, it's the living mm. memory of what happened. 
it's why some people go to war and come back and seemingly unfazed and others go to war and come back and they have PTSD or symptoms that are unexplainable, right? Physiological responses that just don't seem to go away. That's why somebody mm-hmm. gets into a, gets into a small fender bender, they get rear-ended and well, they're fine. There's nothing going on. And another person has that happen and they're, you know, they spend the next six years trying to figure out what's going on with all these mysterious symptoms. Um, it, like there's each body is as unique as our fingerprints. And mm-hmm. sometimes the memory of the, of that experience lives on inside of the body. And so that living memory, we're, we're understanding it better with science. I mean, I say, we, I'm not, I'm not a part of the research. Um, that's, that's definitely <laughs> not my thing, but, uh, at least I'm not a part of the research yet. You know, I won't be the one doing the research mm-hmm. that maybe we'll talk about that a little later on, but, um, yeah, research is really pointing to the way that our nervous system, just one part of the whole of us, um, encodes stress in a really intelligent way to adapt to future occurrences of these things. And it also, I mean, not awesome. It, it also sometimes inhibits our natural response to stress. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a great video out there. Maybe we can link to it. I can drop you the link to the YouTube video of it. Yeah. With um, Peter Levine talking about stress physiology and he's, there's a video of a polar bear and this polar bear is getting tagged to be studied. So these, this team has a helicopter and they're chasing the polar bear and they tag it with the tranquilizer and the polar bear goes down and it's, it's breathing really heavily and they get up to it and they tag it with the, the tag and it starts to come out of the tranquilizing. Uh, I mean, the, the tranquilizer starts to wear off and it's, and its legs start moving again like they were before because it was running when it was tranquilized. So it's immobilized. So the body stops moving, but the processing is still happening inside, right? So the sensory input still occurring. Mm. So when it starts to come out of that deep frozen immobilized state, it's, its system goes back into these movements that it was making. So there's all this energy, the sympathetic energy that's stored in the, in the system. Uh, so it's twitching and it's, it starts taking these really deep breaths and, and it starts self-regulating. It's the, the system goes, okay, well, threat is diminishing. Let's calm down. Well, this is a sequence that often takes place in nature. It's a sequence that's often inhibited. It's prevented in us as humans. And I, and I don't know exactly what causes us to pre- prevent it. It's something that I'm very interested in, in learning about. Um, and, but you know, it's going to take years of study for us to figure out what it is that we do as humans that prevent us from responding more naturally to it. The signs in, of, of trauma only show up in domesticated creatures. We don't see it anywhere else in the animal world. So we don't see it in, in any, na- any animals in nature. We, but we do see it in animals who've been domesticated. Animals that are kept at zoo, in zoos or domesticated animals like dogs and cats. So we can actually see these symptoms in them. And I, I suggest that we're passing our sickness on to them. And I really do think it's a sickness. Mm. It's, it's something that prevents us from living. Um, most mystic traditions have this philosophy of coming into the present moment being the answer to something, right? Whatever the question mm-hmm. is. <laughs> I don't know what exactly the question is, but there's, there's the answer. But it's, it's about being fully present with ourselves, right? Being here in the moment. Yeah. And, and that is somehow this key to infinity, to nirvana, to, to something. Well, mm. animals live fully in the present moment. Now, some of that mm. is brain development related. And we can still access that state. 
And so it's, it's interesting the way that our habituated behavior can train us away from what's most natural to our body. And I, th- well, it seems, Go ahead. it seems like almost like a, a like a devolution, I would mm-hmm. say, because we had that system. And then all of a sudden, like, I almost feel that we've pulled away from that and create, I mean, I almost would venture to say that a lot of what we classify as trauma today is, is self self-made and manufactured by society. And is, there's really almost not as much stress on us uh, mm-hmm. as what it was back in the hunter gatherer days. So it's like we've devolved in a way, right? Is that kind of. In some ways. Yeah. Well, there, there aren't for a lot of us in the industrialized world, let's just say those of us in the industrialized world, there aren't tigers in the trees, right? I don't, I don't have to worry about a bear or a mountain lion. I don't have to worry about an elk ramming me. You know, there, there are very few of those kinds of things, but my body still has this primitive system that hasn't caught up to the speed of evolution of technology. So I'm still getting the same kind of danger cues for my environment, even when the, the danger is not proportional, proportionate to the signaling mm-hmm. that I'm getting right to the trigger. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's complex. I have ideas about it, but I don't, there's just not enough research on it to, for me to fully understand. Um, but I, mm. a friend of mine and I created a foundation and that's part of our mission just to understand that. What is it? Yeah. What is it that prevents well, let's us? Let's dive from... into that. Sure. Yeah. Well, so it's let's called the truth the foundation. foundation. Uh-huh. And the truth foundation, it, its focus is to end trauma. Um, and we believe mm-hmm. that the that trauma is the the biggest cause of our problems as a species. We believe yeah. that it it's what leads to war. It's what leads to polluting our planet. It's what leads to difficulties in relationships. It's the it's what leads to all of it. We believe. So our our hypothesis that we're leading with is this is the greatest problem humanity's ever faced. It's the invisible threat because we're not sure where it came from. It's been a part of culture so long that it's embedded in all of our stories. It's mm. it, it, the, the furthering of it is embedded in the way that we train our young. It's embedded in our religions. It's embedded in, it's, it's, it's in everything. And what creates mm-hmm. it, like it being normal, even in Buddhism, suffering, is a fact of life. It's one of the one of the four noble truths, right? Suffering is. So we learn to come to terms with suffering. But I say yeah. no, suffering's not inevitable. Pain's inevitable. Pain is inevitable. But suffering, that's the lingering of that pain. It doesn't have mm. to linger on. I think it's been inevitable because we've not been a part of um we're not active participants in our process of evolution. And when I say evolution, I mean our process of change, the way that we adapt, we're not active participants in that we're passive bystanders, so to speak as an organism, we're adjusting and adapting, but it happens across time at such a rate that we, myself, I couldn't study it across four generations, not without looking back. I can't do it real time. So I, it's difficult for me to be an active participant in how that's taking place. 
And we don't have systems set up for us as a species that help us to monitor this and to do something about it. And that's where we come in. So our mission is to build that, put that into place. And that starts with research. So we're in the very beginning phases of, of putting things together so that we can start a round of uh, research funding. And once that happens, we'll, we'll be hosting conversations and events and a variety of different things where we can bring together people to have this conversation. And we, we believe there have to be people from every culture on the planet that have to be involved in this because every culture on the planet has a different way of domesticating themselves. So as a, as yeah, a white, and that's, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say as a white American man, um, I ha I only have a real fraction of an understanding of what our process of domestication is like here in the United States. And you have a different understanding, although there may be overlaps. And so the, mm -hmm. the, the size of the study is going to be enormous because we have to take into consideration every culture and all the different cultural norms um, that come along with those cultures and the history that comes along with that and so on. That's really, it's really fascinating. And what, like, it's fascinating because you guys, that's a tall order. I mean, this is a tall order to, to really embark on. Um, and when I look at this, I, 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 ha I like have to ask, cause this is one of the things that especially going on the pod, you know, this podcast that I, you know, with men, because I was there is like, how do we get men to even say first that they have trauma? Right. Like how do we get men to even say, Oh yeah, yeah, I do. I got something I got to work on. I, I have these things that are affecting my life and giving me limitations. You know, how do we even do this? Like what, what's a, what's something that we can even open the door for them with? Yeah. You know, I, um, the place that I begin these days is with science. Here's how our body responds to stress. This is normal for every human being. It's not that we're weak. It's not that there's something wrong with us. It's that there's something right with us. And that something right also has a way of inhibiting our ability to be in the present moment, our ability to respond to things so we can become reactive. Every man knows what it's like to be reactive. Every man knows what it's like to hold back tears because it's not okay for us to to show them every man in some way or another has been told and given the messaging that you got to be strong. You got to be tough. You got to hold it together. And that means don't be emotional. Well, us inhibiting our emotions, that energy, energy goes somewhere. Something happens to that. Emotions are our limbic system. Our limbic system is our alert system. It's what mobilizes us when there's a threat. Um, relationship stress triggers a similar cascade of a response in the, in the body as physiological stress. Right? So if there is an mm -hmm. enemy, if there's, if I'm in a situation where there's a real physical threat to my life somewhere near me. My body's going to have this physiological response to mobilize me so that I can either get the fuck out of there or I can protect myself. I can fight against it, or I can become completely immobilized so I don't experience the sensations of my own death. Well, mm -hmm. relational stress 
sets off a similar cascade. When mom does not attend to me when I need food, my body goes into a state of shock. I cultivate coping mechanisms and strategies for getting my needs met. That's just a small little example of that. When that happens progressively across time and I'm not attended to, and this is just one example, my system learns across time that there's a threat. Now I have that active alarm system that's going off. And what that does is it taxes my body. My body's using extra resources to manage this threat that is invisible now. And so then I'm left with a lingering physiological response that just keeps playing out in my life. So where do we, where do we begin with men? We begin by explaining. <laughs> yeah. We begin yeah. By, by talking about it. Hey, this is a normal response. You're really stressed right now. You're shut down. Of course you are. Shut down because expressing yourself wasn't okay. It's not safe, mm -hmm. quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can't, if I express myself, something's going to happen. I'm going to be cast out of the tribe, cast out of the tribe. You know, that's my belonging. If my belonging's threatened, my safety's threatened. If my safety's threatened, I might die. So what do I do? I respond to it. And, and then here mm -hmm. we are in our, in our little loops, right? Social, cultural loops. And our partner says something. We feel something. But we're men. We can't express that. Eventually, we explode. Mm -hmm. Or we get sick. Ooh. Let's dive into that a little bit. I think that's something that I don't, I don't think a lot of men realize is that, yeah, there's, there's the explosion part and there's the deterioration of relationships, right? That ends up being a byproduct of trauma in a lot of ways, but a lot of things that we don't, and I didn't realize this until I started my own self-development journey and started my own, you know, journey for actually looking into holistic versions of health and the impacts of our mind on our body. But Let's dive into this a little bit. What is, mm -hmm. what is the impact physiologically to us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we can see it as, um, well, major illnesses, right? Um, we see it with heart disease. We see it with early sets, like onset of strokes, or we can also see it with a small deterioration of our vitality. Um, we can, that low grade stress turns into less energy. Um, maybe our testosterone levels drop earlier in life, or maybe we're fatigued a lot. We have difficulty regulating our intestinal function instead of, you know, other things. We become sensitive to foods, but there's an assortment of different ways that this could show up. Right? Uh, Certain diseases may start to show up earlier. We might have cognitive decline. Um, all sorts of different things, right? The aging process seems to be taking place earlier. Men in their fifties wow. are falling apart as though they're in their seventies or their eighties, their bodies rather. Right. And that mm -hmm. is a byproduct of enormous amounts of internalized stress. Mm. So rather than, rather than me taking care of myself and doing something about it, that energy goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. inward. And and so when guys start to harness this inward and they start to think about, okay, like, all right, well, I get it. Like maybe there's, there's something here. Um, how do we kind of, how do you guide them or how do you, what do you give them 
to locate maybe where, because I'm assuming, and I'll let you elaborate is the, the focus on this is to also identify where this trauma started. Right. And so Not how always. do we get them to No. Okay. Not always, but again, what's happening right now in my life, where are the points where there's, um, things aren't going necessarily smoothly. Where are the roadblocks or where's the scratchiness um, instead of it being smooth? And we start there. Where are my triggers right now? And as I get to know where my triggers are right now, what that, that oftentimes leads to a memory. If I really truly explore whatever's happening in the present moment, it'll with practice, I'll be able to associate that to, oh my God, this reminds me of that one time when. And once I connect with that one time when, then I start remembering that and I start feeling whatever that feeling was. I remember that one time my dad yelled at me and, oh my God, I, he was yelling at me and it's now I'm angry all of a sudden. I was like, oh, wow, why am I angry? Right now, oh, now I'm hurting. Right now I'm sad again. Oh, why? What's, what's going on? There it is. It's living. It's alive still. Now my body can't distinguish between this present moment and that memory. And so what I need to do is I need to get into that memory, not in a way that makes it super big. Like, I don't, it doesn't need to be really, really big and over the top. I don't need to yell and scream. Maybe, I, I mean, maybe I do need to yell and scream, but that's not the objective, right? What, need, what needs to happen is the body needs to have a chance to process that so that it, it can integrate it. Once that's integrated, it's no longer using its like physiological resources to manage that. So the body's always managing things, attempting to keep itself at a, in a, an equilibrium, a state of equilibrium, state of homeostasis. We call it in the training that I run, we call it the natural self-writing mechanism that exists in our body. If I stand on one leg, all of my muscles are going to do everything they can to keep me upright. Every system in my body has that same intrinsic like move, like movement pattern or motivating pattern, right? It's going to do everything it can to keep things in balance. Even if that means it pulls a bunch of resources away from my liver so that it can make my heart function properly. Right? So when we start to get into these things, I know I'm, I'm kind of correlating the functioning of, of organs to emotions, but when we have this charged memory, there really is all that energy the electrical impulse currents and whatnot inside of us. And our body's using a lot of energy to not experience that, even though it's still happening inside. And so there can be this little pop, so to speak, or a discharge of the energy and it reintegrates into us. And then there's a relief on the other side of that. And sometimes what we see happen for people is that after they've integrated whatever the thing is, we don't need to know necessarily what it is, but once they integrate it, some of the symptoms that they were experiencing vanish. They just go away. Like, oh man, I'm not getting headaches anymore. I don't know what changed. Maybe it's my sleep. Maybe I'm not as stressed anymore. No, we integrated that thing. The headaches, maybe they were a lingering response to that. Maybe your body just doesn't have to work so hard anymore. So we begin by really getting a sense of what's present right now. What are my triggers right now? And then we work them. Well, when I'm triggered, what's going on inside? Can I get out of my mind into what's happening in my body? 
when I do, what happens? Can I be with myself? Or do I go back up into my mind? Do I need to do something else? Real training for us, man, is being with ourselves. Like that's the real training. Can I be with myself when I'm triggered, when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I'm frightened, instead of mm -hmm. disconnecting myself from it, right? Mm -hmm. The whole concept of stoicism, I think, is really fascinating. And it's really misunderstood, right? People think it's this, like, I just don't feel my feelings. <laughs> so misunderstood. I know. It's not what it is. It's, wow, I can identify my feelings and I'm so trained at being with them that I can be with extraordinary amounts of emotion without responding or reacting rather through them. If we take apart that word to mm -hmm. reacting. We're reenacting, right? It's an action from the past, an action pattern from the past that we're replaying. But when we're mm -hmm. responding, it's totally different. I can respond from this present moment. Yeah. And it's, it, I have to ask, I want to take us back one second is when you were talking about how that trauma can then be like popped and then be released. Or when we sit there and suppress that, you know, suppress that stress or that, that, uh, those emotions from that situation. Is this where you believe or where people like to refer to trauma going into the subconscious? Um, yeah. a lot of, I hear a lot of people talk like that. Is that where this would get suppressed? And then, and then maybe we feel a certain way when a situation happens and we're like, no clue. We're not even relating it to an old scenario. We're just like, what, why am I even feeling this? That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's a sure sign that there's some sort of living memory, right? The unconscious, I think of Carl Jung kind of coined this, this term, the uh, unconscious, like whatever happens below our perception. I think of that as the body's memory, right? So again, we have these reflexes and what you were describing is almost like a reflexive response. Like I'm in a situation and all of a sudden I'm triggered and I don't know why the hell I'm triggered. Like, I don't know what it is about mm -hmm. this. This is like, I'm just really fucking mad right now. Like, why the fuck did that person talk to me that way? Like, that is just wrong. Yeah. Right. But another person might have that <laughs> happen to them and they're not bothered at all. <laughs> they're like, I don't care. It didn't yeah. phase me at all. Right. And, and, and so we ask, why is that for that way for that person? Right. Well, now I'm reenacting something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I can't identify it. I'm not aware enough of myself to be able to understand it. But as I become aware, that that's happening, right? I can expand my awareness just a little bit to go, well, oh, this is happening. When else does this happen? What is it that's triggering? And maybe I just need to word vomit for a little while. Like, well, this person, blah, 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 blah. You know, like I need to like talk about what it is that they're doing that's making me feel this way. That's where we start. But eventually I start to understand that they're not doing anything to make me feel a certain way, right? The next step is understanding mm -hmm oh, wow, this is something that's happening inside of me. They just, they're just moving through the world. I'm flooded with these feelings. Is there a point that's familiar? What's familiar about these feelings? Huh? Oh my God. It's just like that time in 11th grade when so-and-so was such and such. And, you know, here we are. I remember it. This person is just like my father. And sometimes it's parents, but sometimes it's not, you know, and sometimes it's none of that, Johnny. Sometimes it's just like, I have no fucking clue. An example that one of the trainers that um, 
that trained me, one of my, I guess I call him a mentor at this point. Um, an example that he uses when he talks about trauma is this great example. Um, and I'll use it. His name is Burns Galloway. So I'm, I'm going to quote his story and use it for my own purposes. And it's not his personal story. Mm -hmm. It's just one that he made up for illustration. But um, I'm, it's this beautiful day. And I live downtown in whatever city we might want to be in. It doesn't really matter. But in, in a city, I live downtown. I come out of my, my apartment and it's gorgeous. And I look up and the sky's blue. It's clear. It's that perfect temperature between spring and summer or summer and fall, yeah. you know, like everything's just beautiful outside. It's absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful. Right. So I'm, I'm appreciating the weather. I step out onto the sidewalk. I'm smelling the air and I'm turned to the left and I'm looking. And then there's this flash of red from my right in my peripheral vision. I just see this flash of red and I'm unconscious and I wake up and I'm in the hospital and it's been a week or it's been two weeks. I don't know what happened. I'm told that I was hit by a car. I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna recover, but I was in a coma. I recover, seemingly okay. I go about my life. My body heals. I do a little bit of rehabilitation therapy. Um, and then I'm back into the world, except Sometimes when I'm around certain people and it's not the same people, I get really angry. I don't know why. I just get hit with these, like somebody will come into the room and I'm suddenly, I'm just enraged. They didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. I have no idea why I'm angry. And this keeps happening. And I start to think I'm going crazy. I don't know who to ask. So eventually I go to therapy for it, but the therapist is no help. I, they don't, I don't have a, I didn't have any bad things happen to me during childhood. You know, for all, as far as I can tell, I had a relatively normal life. And what we have happening here is there's the memory of that experience. I was hit by a red truck. Every time somebody's wearing a red shirt, my body's survival response is triggered. So the mobilizing energy that would have been there to get me away from danger starts flooding my system. We call it anger, but it's just a limbic system response that would mobilize me to get away from danger. But because I couldn't turn and see it, because I had no time, all of those responses are thwarted. They're, they're like, I couldn't enact them. So my body's stuck in this state and I'm unaware of it, right? Now that's trauma. It's the living memory, right? I may find myself in relationship dynamics where all of a sudden I'm just flooded with anger and I don't know why my partner's done nothing and I need help. I'm like, I can't live this way. I've got almost no peripheral vision in my right side, you know, and when it's a really beautiful day, I get agitated. These are all little triggers, like body triggers that can, can I mean, I'm just using one potential scenario and it's so complex. Yeah. It's not, it's not all like that, but that's one way that it could show up. I can't enjoy good days anymore because there's a yeah. cue, right? A sensory cue that my body gets that goes threat, alarm, alarm, danger, tiger, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so that's a good example of it not being related to an actual dynamic with another human being. And the, Mm. the brilliance of somatic experiencing and what Peter Levine discovered in his exploration of working with people was that there is a way to help the body to process that so that it doesn't live on anymore. There's a way to free us from that so that we can regain our peripheral vision so that we can be in relationship with people without getting triggered the same way so that we can reclaim our humanity, so to speak. That's beautiful, brother. I I love this because there's, there's a piece to this that I really is, is kind of like, um, really touches my heart, my soul, because there are a lot of men who go overseas or are in these alpha jobs and we come back and we, we don't have any discernible trauma. Um, there's, there isn't a lot, we don't have night terrors, like some other guys with PTSD. We don't have, uh, this high levels of anxiety and groups of people that often, um, accommodates people from coming back from overseas. But I see these guys have very big struggles in their relationships. Um, and we don't, we don't associate with trauma, right? Like, you know, we don't, we we're like, no, there's nothing there. But what you just explained really can help us come to terms that there could be, and it's triggered by small little things. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. There's some sort of memory. It's, we need to have that. It's, it's, it's how we survive, but we don't want to get rid of that. Like if, if I'm in the kind of scenarios that you or other brothers that you served with, we're going to be in. I need to have that kind of sensory like programming, so to speak, for my environment. I need to be able to rely on my body to be able to do that because that's how I stay alive, right? So I don't mm-hmm. want to get rid of that. And when I understand how it works, when I come home, I can start to understand, oh, that's why I'm triggered. Oh, shit. Mm. There's, there is something there inside me. I'm not sure what it is. Fuck. Damn it. There's something there. How do I stop this? How do I come back to myself? Right? It's like, I really want to feel free from some of these things. And um, little by little, step by step, right? We And we work with somebody to help us to identify what those things are inside and help our bodies to let go of whatever that stress is. Um, I mean, I call it stress, but whatever the, the patterns of tension are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so with, with that, I know that you have something coming up pretty soon, some training that's coming up in, I believe it's May. Mm -hmm. And is this something that you're working with people around? Can you, can you dive a little bit into that training and what's going to be involved in that for people? Yeah. So we teach practitioners to use a trauma informed approach when they're working with people. Now that whether that be excuse me, whether that be doctors, whether that be nurses, whether that be educators, therapists, coaches, movement practitioners, uh, any number of different people. We teach them to use this trauma-informed approach. And what that means is, how do I identify that a person's living with these, with this imprint? And 100% of us have this to some degree or another. It's just the nature of the way our, our bodies work right now. 
So how do I know when that's happening? And then how do I support a person when they're going through that? So we make this distinction between working with somebody who has, you know, trauma and working on the trauma. So let's say I'm a trauma-informed practitioner and you come to me and we're maybe say I'm a coach and I'm like, you're like, I want to grow my business or I want this thing to, to be changing in my life, right? We're focused on this, this one particular goal. So maybe a strategic goal yeah. or maybe it's more nuanced, right? We're redesigning your life in some way, shape or form, right? While we're working mm -hmm. together, I start to notice that every time we go to make this one growth change or, the, or every time you go to expand just a little bit or go to do a thing, you get stuck. And over mm -hmm. time, I start to identify that there's this lingering something where you, <clears throat> your trigger is really getting in the way of you taking some sort of action in your life. Let's just say it's mm -hmm. in business. Let's just say you need to be visible on social media. We'll just use that as an example, right? And every time you go to do that, you get stuck. Well, that's a cue now. So when I'm trauma-informed, I'm starting to understand. And rather than me going and saying, well, let's work on exactly what that thing is and discover what that is, what I might do is give you tools to help you regulate your body's uh, response to that stress. So I'm going to learn interventions. And what we teach is a variety of different interventions is what we call them, but different techniques that I could use with you to help you regulate your body so that when it comes time for you to do the thing, you're not experiencing as much stress. And then I'd be able to identify, ooh, I think this kind of practitioner would be really good for you to go to work with and I'll help you build a team. So you can work with that practitioner on the thing that's getting that's triggering that. But while we're doing our work together, we, I can also help you to to stay in a greater regulation, right? To be more regulated in your, in your day-to-day -day life. Greater regulation means I have more capacity for thinking. When I have more capacity for thinking and decision-making, I'm not, you know, in, I'm not getting uh, hijacked by my, my amygdala, so to speak. Right? Yeah. I know the military has all kinds of really great training that, to teach you to not be hijacked by your amygdala. <laughs> And, sure. <laughs> and, and then when we come back to society, well, some of that doesn't stick in the same way, right? So we learn new techniques, nope. right? Different yeah. set of circumstances, <laughs> right? Yep. Right. So Absolutely. there are other, there are other techniques that we teach that are, excuse me, there are body-based techniques um, and mm. they work on our automatic responses to stress. A perfect example of this would be something like, even right now, and I don't know what your environment looks like, but anyone that's listening, and you and I can do this together, if we just pause for a moment, let's just say we're stressed right now. If we pause for a moment and look around our space, right? So, and we, we want to engage our neck muscles. So I'm going to look around. If you want to look around too, we'll just notice what we see. The first thing I notice is that it is, there is, I have a massive storm happening here right now. Oh yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's raining incredibly hard and there was lightning and thundering just a minute ago. So I'm noticing all the rain outside and then I'm noticing my water next to me. I noticed my bookshelf. So hmm. when we look around, you might actually be able to hear the rain. I don't know. When we look around, mm -hmm. 
what we're able to, what we do is we give our animal a chance to orient to our space. I pick out a couple of objects or just notice where my attention is drawn. And if I name them out loud, I'm now connecting that with my prefrontal cortex. So I'm putting language to it. Oftentimes I yawn when I look around, especially if I'm staring really? at a screen a lot, or I'll notice that I'll take a deeper breath. But we engage the neck muscles and that engages the vagus nerve a little bit. And so the science of this is that generally it works if I'm in a safe environment. If I just pause and we look around our room and we pick out a couple objects and we talk about them briefly, what happens is the system goes from a bit elevated or extremely elevated to less elevated or more relaxed. It just, the system automatically downregulates. So if I'm not in a threatening environment, when I orient myself to my environment, boom, my system calms down. And this is one of the, the many techniques that we teach, but it's, it's so simple that most people just kind of write it off as, ah, whatever. But in the moment yeah. when we use it, when we're triggered, we're just like, holy fuck, that worked. Like, I don't feel triggered anymore. What the, it's so simple. Just look around, yeah. orient ourselves to our environment. So it's one example, right? It's, yeah. So, um, we teach nervous system physiology. We teach polyvagal theory, the basics of it, um, which is, you know, understanding of the nervous system. We teach okay. the basics of attachment theory, uh, some psycho psychological frameworks. Um, we teach, we have a whole library of um, techniques and various different somatic or body-based practices that we teach. So it's 35 hours of training. Uh, 10 wow. of those hours are recorded, pre-recorded content. And the rest is live. Is that right? Is it 10? Yeah, I think that's right. So we have 10 <laughs> classes. No, five hours is pre-recorded. 30 hours is live. <laughs> there we go. So we just increased five it because, yeah, yeah. We just increased it because we found that we had so much time that was being spent. The, the live classes are now three hours long. So it starts oh, May wow. 6th mm -hmm, and it goes for three months. The uh, learning amazing. materials, yeah, the learning materials kind of follow along with the classes and the classes are experiential. And so by the end of this, most practitioners know enough about the human body to be able to, to relate not only with themselves differently, but the people in their life differently. And we, it's, we've had people that aren't practitioners come through, but we've designed this for specifically for uh, practitioners. So when you're using whatever techniques or modalities that you use, here's how to enhance that by understanding the human body. And we blend in mysticism and things like that too. Yeah. Well, I, I would hope so. Mysticism and, and philosophy, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, well, I love that. So if there's any practitioners out there listening now, this is a course that you guys should be jumping on and it kicks off May 6th. Are you guys doors open right now or is there yeah. a, a time? Okay. Doors open now. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. Everybody uh, that's listening, go ahead and make sure you check out the show notes. We'll link to Will's website. So you guys can go there and sign up and be part of that. If you're a practitioner in that field. Beautiful. Yeah. The, and the, just, it's easy to remember trauma and somatics.com. It's uh, we've made it as simple as we could. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I have trauma around remembering that. There you go, Will. <laughs> well, brother, it's been great having you on the show. It's flown by. You are a treasure trove of knowledge and obviously could have spoken for so much longer on all of this. Um, is there anything else that you have going on or any way we can support you more other than your May 6th uh, offering? Is there something else that you have out there right now that we can tap into? Right now, we don't actually have anything else going on, funny enough. We were going to do a, a, a workshop, a single day workshop, but we decided to, to wait until later in the year for that. And for myself personally, I'm so busy. I take on a couple of private clients a year and with the training, um, I, my, my weeks are, end up being pretty full. But if anybody wants to get on my waiting list, they're welcome to send me an email. They can find me on social media channels. Um, I still answer all of my own correspondence. So it's will at willreason, R-E-Z-I-N.com or at willreason on any of the social channels and they can reach out to me there. Um, I do, I, I, work, I work with very few people every year, you know, six to 10 people a year, generally speaking. And so I have a, a nice long, uh, it, it's a long journey usually. There's a, a bit of a, a waiting list right now, probably six months out, but people want to wow. get in there. I encourage them to. Yeah, brother. Hey man, you, you are teaching something. You have a great presence about you and a great energy and you're teaching something and supporting people to find themselves deeper. So, I mean, yeah, why wouldn't they be a wait list for it? By the way, I also just heard that thunder Did you? Uh, behind you. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a, we, so we, we've got a tornado warning until uh, 10 PM tonight. Oh, wow. That's yeah. crazy. You're in Austin, right? I am. Yeah. I'm excited. Maybe yeah. I'll uh, get to see a tornado. It's been, and I lived in the Midwest for a number of years and it's been a long time since I've seen one. Bro, that's not two things I think are, should be together. Excited to see a tornado <laughs> when you potentially are in its path. <laughs> <laughs> they bounce around all over the place. You know, when I lived out in Indiana, not to sidetrack us too far here, Johnny, no, when I lived out in Indiana, no, no. Uh, there were many days where it would storm for 10 hours um, and the Midwest can be like that. And there was this one year where we had over 700 tornadoes or something like that in a, in a month and a half and in the area, oh. in the state itself. And I chased one once and it was thrilling and terrifying all at the same time. I was in an old car. It's a 1967 Oldsmobile tornado. And that thing was heavy <laughs> as a tank, heavy as a tank. Oh. And, uh, we chased it and we got to a point where it tore up the road and we couldn't keep chasing it. <laughs> oh wow it reminds me of that movie twister yeah 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 That's right. uh, well i love it i love it brother well thank you for being on the show thank you for dropping your wisdom uh before you get to head off to your nice stormy evening i have one last question for you and awesome. that is what does what does the art of masculinity mean to you mm. i was thinking about this this morning when i woke up and i was laying in bed you know, I think the art of masculinity every one of us is an expression of art. And as men, we get an opportunity to do that in a really special way. And I think it's up to us at this point to redefine what that means. And so for me, it means being 
an embodiment of my values, loving and caring for people, being firm with my boundaries, um, being connected to my emotions, being intentional with my actions and mm. taking care of those in my life and taking care of myself, taking care of myself first so that I can be there for others. There's this um, gentle power is what I think of gentleness and kindness, but firmness and power as well. Mm. Beautifully said, brother. Beautifully said. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Will. This has been a pleasure. And to everybody listening, as always, remember to drop the ego and stay humble. Until next time.